Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we are grateful to you for your word. I am grateful to you for the privilege of being able to open and proclaim uh, your everlasting and perfect uh, word that gives life, that reveals our Lord Jesus Christ, and I ask that you would help me to lift him up, because where he is lifted up, he has promised to draw all peoples to himself. So help us to see the glory of Christ this morning. Through your word, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, everybody these days wants to give lip service to helping, helping the helpless. Uh, in practice, <clears throat> however, people don't help the helpless uh, so much. Uh, you can take the most helpless in our society, babies still in the womb. Uh, many reports are saying that uh, abortions are at their lowest rates uh, since abortion was legalized in 1972. Um, but that simply means that there were 800,000 abortions, down about 20% uh, from 2011 when there were over a million abortions each year. Uh, this statistic alone screams that America values self over helping the helpless. Uh, we are hearing a lot about socialism these days. The central premise of socialism is the need to help the helpless. By bringing up socialism, I'm not trying to uh, enter into the political skirmishes and political dialogue that's going on these days. Uh, rather, the opposite is happening. Uh, the politics of socialism is entering the church. Uh, not at Westminster that I know of, but the church at large, even into our denomination. It's become fashionable for Christians to say that socialism is just practical Christianity. That Jesus and the early, the early church taught socialism because socialism is so actively encroaching upon American Christianity. It becomes necessary then that be, it be addressed uh, in the pulpit. And I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this topic, but just uh, try and land a, a glancing blow uh, as the parable of the Good Samaritan is often cited as an example of Jesus teaching socialism. And speaking against socialism, I'm not speaking for capitalism. Um, so um, please understand that uh, as well. Um, we want to be biblical here at Westminster, um, and we want uh, the scriptures to control our thinking about economics. We, we want the scriptures to control how we think about politics. Uh, our commitment, ultimately, should not be to Republican or Democrat or Libertarian. Our commitment should be to the scriptures. And our political thinking should be shaped and guided not by the politicians of the day or the prevailing political 
uh, theories of the day, but should be guided by Scripture alone. So I want to challenge you uh, during this uh, very rancorous uh, election season. uh, Measure what you are hearing by the Scriptures. Don't get involved in the tit-for-tat. It's tempting. I get involved in the tit-for-tat. I look at Twitter and somebody says one thing and somebody says another. And, and, um, but I, I continually remind myself, Scripture alone is our rule for faith, for practice, and for political theory. Um, that being said, socialism is being pressed forward in our society um, and this socialism, this being pressed forward in our society, um, did not originate with Jesus or the early church. Socialism as a political theory was developed by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, right, in the mid-1800s. Although Marx and Engels developed a political system that was supposed to be aimed at helping the helpless, uh, helping the, the helpless working-class proletariat, Neither, as far as the researchers show, or as far as the researchers know, ever truly had close friendships um, with any person in the working class. Um, Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, their associations and their friendships were among the intellectual class in London. As they created the Communist League, they made sure that the working class were restricted from any positions of influence. If you want to read about uh, Marx and Engels, I heartily recommend Paul Johnson's book, The Intellectuals. Um, I think I've recommended this book before uh, from the pulpit, and I know I've recommended another book actually several times Uh, by Paul Johnson, Modern Times. It's one of my favorites. Um, And it's very much worth the time it takes to read if you are a student of history or political uh, theory. Paul Johnson says that Karl Marx, although hailed as um, the social benefactor of humanity, that he, he disliked people in general. Uh, It's the height of irony that people try to tie Jesus and Karl Marx together as if they are saying the same thing. Uh, Marx had a child with one of his servants. Marx, the the man of the proletariat, the man of the working class, always had servants in his house to serve him. And he had a child with one of these servants, and he refused to let this child live in his home. The child had to be raised by a foster family. In other words, Karl Marx was no lover of people, much less his neighbor. Uh, My point is that it's easy to pay lip service to helping the helpless. Socialism wants society... Uh, meaning the government to help the poor, but uh, calling our society or 
individuals in our society to spend their time, to spend their energy, to spend their money actively helping the helpless uh, in any really meaningful way is not what socialism teaches. Um, The government can do it. The government can take power and money away from the people to help the poor. But calling individuals to meaningfully help the poor is not what socialism is all about. In fact, socialism has established itself um, on the backs of the poor. Those who do not, the poor who do not submit to socialism have been eliminated from society. Uh, Communist China uh, murdered 60 million of his own citizens in order to establish communism. Uh, Russia, I think 30 to 40 million people were killed in, uh, in their efforts to establish communism um, when Russia uh, became the Soviet Union. Uh, the leading voices in our nation live in $12 million homes on Martha's Vineyard, far secluded from the helpless that they are continually calling for the government to help. In every socialistic nation, the leaders of socialistic government do not associate with the poor and helpless they are supposedly in power to help. It's easy to pay lip service. And the lawyer in our passage learned this lesson in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, to be a lawyer uh, was to be an expert in God's law, or to be a lawyer in Israel during Jesus' day was to be an expert in God's law. He was, he was more a biblical scholar and a theologian than what we think of when we think of lawyers uh, today. He thought, and so this lawyer thought he could trip up Jesus by putting him to the test. And uh, notice this little power move in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up. Everybody else is sitting down. Jesus is sitting down. And this lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. Uh, Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up. And put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This lawyer, although he was trying to trip up Jesus, he actually asked a good question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a great question because eternal life is a real thing. There are people in this room who will inherit eternal life. That is a blessing that you can look forward to with joy. The moment you close your eyes in death, you will open them in God's presence immediately. In fact, If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life now. Though your body might die, you live. um, 
as good a news as that is, there are others who will not inherit eternal life. When they die, they will pass into everlasting damnation and judgment. So this is a great question. It's an important question. It's a question that you and I had better answer correctly. Interestingly, Jesus does not answer this lawyer's question directly. It's obvious to me that Jesus knows that this lawyer does not have a teachable heart. So instead of answering the question, Jesus turns the question around and asks the lawyer about what the Bible says on the subject. doesn't matter what Jesus says. Jesus says what matters is what the Bible says. So verse 26, he being Jesus, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So this gives this lawyer an opportunity to show off some of his theological knowledge, show off his knowledge of the scriptures. And the lawyer quoted uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, combined those two in his response, uh, verse 27. And he, the lawyer, and the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live, quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5. You know, I would guess that this is not how you would typically answer such a question. I would, I would not answer like Jesus answered here in this passage. I would emphasize the grace of God. I would talk about justification by faith alone. Why does Jesus answer, do this and live? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, love your neighbors yourself. Do this and live. That's not typically how I preach the gospel. Uh, But Jesus knows this lawyer does not care to hear about the grace of God. He doesn't care to hear about justification by faith. Uh, Because this lawyer doesn't think that he needs to be justified. He He doesn't think that he needs to hear about the grace of God. He's a good and righteous man. So what Jesus is doing here in verse 28 when he says, Do this and you will live. Jesus is attacking his self-righteousness. Jesus emphasizes obedience to the law to demonstrate to this lawyer that this lawyer is a lawbreaker, that his righteousness falls short, that he is a sinner in need of salvation. The Bible makes it clear that one of the uses of the law is to teach us, indeed, that we are lawbreakers, that our righteousness indeed does fall short that we are indeed sinners in need of salvation. Every one of you here in this room, every one of you within the sound of my voice, are sinners in need of salvation. You are unrighteous. Your righteousness falls short of the glory of God. This lawyer needed to understand this. Do you understand this? The door to eternal life is closed to you 
If you think that you can get in by your own goodness or your own righteousness or by your own good works, Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not conform or does not con- uh, confirm the words of this law by doing them. If you break even just one law, you are guilty of being a lawbreaker. James says this in, in, in James 2, verse 10. He's very clear on this point. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. The Apostle Paul also speaks to this, uh, this issue in Romans 3, 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. One of the reasons God gave us his law is so that you would understand that you are a lawbreaker. We look at Israel's history. We look at Israel's continual rebellion against God. You know, as I read the um, the uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, going on into uh, Joshua and Judges, you know, I'm always pulling for the Israelites. Come on, Israelites, you can do it. You can trust God. God living right there in the Shekinah glory, um, right there in your, in your presence. He's done these miracles for you. He parted the Red Sea. Come on, Israel, you can trust in God. And what do they always do? They always rebel against God. They always find some way to not trust God. The whole history of Israel, not only in Exodus through, through um, Judges, but going on in all the kings, they are sinners. Even the most righteous of the kings, King David, a man after God's own heart, a sinner, an adulterer, and a murderer. And so the message that we need to understand from the Old Testament, the message we need to understand from the whole Bible, is that we are sinners in need of God's grace. The law of God is a reflection of God's perfect righteousness. So it should be clear to us that none of us can be righteous as God is. Every time we fail to obey God's law, the law screams at us that our good works are nothing more than dirty rags, that our attempts at inheriting eternal life based on our own own goodness are futile. When Jesus told the lawyer, do this and you will live, Jesus might as well have been telling this lawyer, Swim from Tampa to Houston across the Gulf of Mexico and you will live. Jump across the the Grand Canyon and you will live. Jump high enough to jump over the moon and you will live. In other words, it's impossible. 
Jesus was telling the lawyer, you are a sinner. The lawyer's response to this should have been, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. But instead, the lawyer tries to justify himself by defining his neighbor narrowly enough to allow him to think that he has really loved his neighbor as he loves himself. And this is a very pharisaical thing for this lawyer to do. Well, those Gentiles, they're not my neighbor. The, the poor in Israel who are uneducated, they don't know the law, they don't read the law, they're not my neighbor. You know, other people that I associate with, other lawyers, other Pharisees, uh, religious leaders, yeah, they're, they're my neighbor. Um, I think what's happening, and this is just my own supposition, is that there was an instance uh, where this lawyer had treated someone badly. Uh, and, it, and he was reminded of this as Jesus um, was saying, do this and you will live. So he's trying to narrow down who his neighbor really is. If he's able to exclude this person that he treated badly from being his neighbor, then he could believe that he would be worthy to inherit eternal life. During this season of unrest in our nation, it's awfully tempting to narrow down our circle of neighbors to exclude those on the opposite um, side from us politically. Uh, Beware of doing that. There's a lot of hatred going on uh, in our nation right now. Uh, Beware of returning hate for hate. Uh, The lawyer started the conversation trying to test Jesus. But now the lawyer's the one who's feeling the heat. And Jesus began turning the screws by telling a parable. If you've pre- previously heard a sermon on the mount, uh, a, a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan, I'm sure you've heard how the how treacherous the road was between Jericho or Jerusalem and Jericho. Um, it was basically an east-west route that stretched about 17 miles, but during the 17 miles, you were descending from Jerusalem down to Jericho, 3,300 feet. And um, there were, the road offered many opportunities for thieves to hide and spring upon unsuspecting travelers. In the parable, a man had fallen victim to these thieves and he was beaten very severely and stripped of his clothes. Presumably, this man was an Israelite. So verse 30, Jesus begins the parable. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. In the parable, the first two people who passed by this helpless victim were both religious leaders, exactly the kind of people you would expect who would stop, who would give this man some help. And I think Jesus used these uh, religious leaders in his parable because it set a contrast between true and false worship of God. The religious leaders had undoubtedly 
worshipped in the temple while they were in Jerusalem. And now they are returning to Jericho. But on the way back from worshipping God, they ignore a man in obvious need. In fact, it might have been their commitment to worship that caused them to pass by on the other side of the road. What if the man was dead and they became ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and could not lead, in, lead worship in the synagogue? You know, I understand that. You know, I got just a little bit of a sniffle one Wednesday evening. Nothing, I mean, even a little head cold. This was not as, this was so minor. Um, and the first thought was, well, I wonder if I can preach Sunday. You know, I won't, and so I called the doctor the next morning. She put me on quarantine. I went through Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday night thinking, I don't, I don't have coronavirus. It, the symptoms were so mild. And then Tuesday morning uh, came around and I found out differently. Um, so anyway, um, you know, I can understand they might have been, you know, I don't want to become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So instead of helping, uh, they saw this man half dead, maybe thinking he is dead, maybe they're thinking he might die while I'm helping him, and they purposely pass by on the other side of the road, verses 31 and 32. Now, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, to make his, his point crystal clear, Jesus said that the third person to pass by was a despised Samaritan. We saw at the end of Luke 9 how the disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume an entire Samaritan village and wanted Jesus to do this. You know, such was the animosity, the deep-seated animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. But in the parable, of the, in the, parable the Samaritan stopped and had compassion on this helpless, this helpless victim. He rendered him aid. He put him on his animal and brought him to an inn where he continued to care for the man. The next day, um, he paid the innkeeper what amounted to two weeks' rent uh, to continue caring for the man. And he promised then also to come back and repay any extra expenses that had arisen. The Samaritan had compassion on this Israelite. And he sacrificed his time. He sacrificed his energy. He sacrificed his treasure or his money uh, to care for him as best he could. Verses 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went out, now he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you uh, when I come back. So, Jesus, after telling this parable, asked the lawyer, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer, I think, 
this is my own opinion. I think that lawyer was not able to bring himself to say the word Samaritan because that would have been the easy answer. Well, the Samaritan was the neighbor. But the, the lawyer so despised the Samaritans. How did he answer? He said, um, in response to Jesus' question, he said, the one who showed him mercy. To which Jesus replied, you go and do likewise. The lawyer wanted to define his, ne- his neighbor in such a narrow way so that he could set limitations on the obedience expected of him. In other words, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus is saying that is the wrong question. The right question is, what kind of neighbor are you? Are you compassionate when the need arises, regardless of, the, of who the person is or how costly it might be to you? Or to put it another way, to put it in terms of, um, of the parable, do you love others, even your enemies, as you love yourself? And are you willing to serve them with a practical and compassionate love. The parable of the Good Samaritan tells us how we are to live as Christians. We are to love our neighbor and we are to render practical help to those that God providentially puts in our path. We cannot pass by on the other side of the road. That practical help might cost us uh, some of our time, some of our energy, even some of our money. And these questions of who we help are not easily answered. Um, But the question that Jesus wants you to ask is, what kind of neighbor are you? You know, truthfully, none of us can ever measure up to this standard. Every one of us loves ourselves at the expense of our neighbors to one degree or another. We're all sinners. But because we often fail and only imperfectly love our neighbor, it does not mean that we should not try to do it imperfectly. It's real tempting to say, well, Jesus is saying you can't do it, and so you need grace and leave it there. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus says to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. So what kind of neighbor are you to those in need? Frankly, the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a barometer, not only of your love for your neighbor, but more importantly, your love for God. If you have been regenerated, if you have been redeemed by God, you will begin to love others. Christ lives in your soul. Therefore, your desires will grow towards his priorities. His priorities are loving sinners. He loved us when we were his enemies. We will grow in our practical love for everyone um, that God providentially puts in our path. The the parable of uh, of the Good Samaritan not only exposed the heart of the lawyer, it also exposed the glory and love of Christ. You know, Christ could tell this lawyer to go and do likewise because Christ always and perfectly loves his neighbor. 
Jesus practiced what he preached. If you want to know how you are to love your neighbor, read the Gospels. Look at what Jesus did. Look at how Jesus responded to his enemies. Look at how Jesus served the lost. Look at how Jesus loved his disciples. Christ did not stop short when religious leaders expressed their practical hatred toward him. Christ did not stop short when people failed to entrust themselves to him at the end of his sermons. Christ did not stop short when his own followers abandoned him. He continued to love them and he loved them perfectly. Christ loved us so perfectly that human hatred and fickleness did not stop him from pursuing the cross on our behalf. Jesus did not just cross a road to show us compassion like the Good Samaritan. Jesus left the glory of heaven and came into our world to die a sacrificial death in your and my place. Look to him now. Trust in him because he loves you. I realize I've gone a little longer, but hey, it's been a month, right? Let's uh, pray together. Lord, we, we marvel at your unstoppable and perfect love. We thank you that you loved us even when we hated you. Even while we were your enemies, you died for us. Lord, I ask that you would help us then as believers in our Lord Jesus, people who have been redeemed by his blood, people who are children of God. Help us to love our neighbor well. Help us to outshine the socialist by continually repenting of our own self-love, by continually looking unto Jesus drawing from his grace and thereby being always prepared to serve those in need, whether it be each other here in this congregation or a complete stranger that we come across uh, as we are driving home from church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.